0: Anything Ghost, number two ninety three. Welcome to Anything Ghost. My name is Lex Wall. Anything Ghost. It's a place where people share their personal paranormal experiences, people like you, the listeners of the show. You can send them to lex at anythingghost.com or fill out the form at anythingghost.com. It's going to be a rather short show in episode number 293, but nonetheless, I think you'll enjoy the creepy stories coming your way. So hold on to something tight. Here comes episode number 293. Mm 293. first story we have comes to us from Alex in Michigan. The Green Man. When I was a boy growing up on the west side of Detroit, Michigan, I observed a number of scary experiences in a very normal, very plain ranch-style house that was the picture of the American dream. Now that I'm looking back on these occurrences, I don't know how else to describe them except as paranormal. I do hesitate to call them ghost stories, but I'll just lay out the facts as they happened and allow the listener to reserve their own judgment. As I said, I grew up in a very normal ranch-style home on a very safe leafy street where children could play freely and without worry. You might even call this neighborhood boring, or at least unassuming. In those days, there was a tremendous amount of diversity in the neighborhood. It was filled with immigrants from wide varied places like Macedonia, Poland, Lebanon, Mexico, and other far-flung countries. There were no apartment complexes, and instead everybody owned their own freestanding house. This is typical of Detroit, which is very car-centric and suburban. The neighbor, an old American guy, used to tinker around on an old Packard in his garage. Anyways, you get the picture. The houses were in the mid-century style and not very old. In fact, our house only had one previous owner. But that didn't mean it wasn't haunted. Sometimes at night, I would have trouble falling asleep. I was a very energetic 5-year-old, so I assume that wasn't uncommon for a kid like me. What is uncommon, however, is the reason behind my sleeplessness. I could feel a growing presence inside of my house. But this presence didn't originate in the house. It didn't linger there during the day. It came from outside. And it only came when it got dark out. I said that the presence was growing because it revealed itself to me slowly over time. It began with what I'll describe as a heartbeat. An ambient, slowly thumping rhythm that I could feel when it came into our house. Kind of like a Doppler effect. It's difficult to explain the sound and feeling. But when I began to feel this thing, I would get so filled with fright that I would immediately jump out of bed and run down the hall into my parents' room. From the safety of their room, I felt it slowly stalk around the house. I never saw what it looked like. I didn't want to see it. But at night, night after night, over the course of a month, it began to grow more brave. I could feel it as it moved around the house, and I could sense where it was in proximity to me by the strength of the Doppler effect heartbeat feeling. Each night it got closer, and the thumping was stronger and louder. Sometimes it walked up to the door and I could feel it looking into the room But I was too afraid to look back. I hid my head Then the night finally came when I saw it That night began similarly to the other nights that came before I went to bed and found myself awake a few hours later during a time when everybody else was asleep and the only sound was the ticking of the kitchen clock. And just like usual, I felt it enter the house and I ran into my parents' room and jumped into their bed. Then, just like so many nights before, I felt it make its way down the hall. Normally it would stop before their door. But that night, it walked into my parents' bedroom and revealed itself to me. The thing was a pulsating mass of green energy. It was expanding and contracting like a heartbeat, the beating that I could feel. Both as a child and as an adult, I would describe it the same way. Squiggly green lines that were going everywhere. But it was still walking upright on two legs in the shape of a man such as it was. When it walked into the room, it had to duck its head to enter. It must have been seven feet tall. When it entered the room, the heartbeat feeling was so overwhelming, I had to cover my ears with my hands. It began to spread and quickly covered the whole area of the room and it was gone the night I finally saw the green man was my last encounter with it in my preface I said that I hesitated to call it a ghost but I'm not well versed enough in the paranormal to know what it was it never did come back maybe a listener can shed some light on the nature of this entity Again, I don't want to call it a ghost, but I don't know the explanation. I have other stories that have happened to me over the years, up until I was in college, but none compared to the horror of the green man that came to me as a child. The next story is from Suzanne, Vancouver, British Columbia. The story concerns my aunt Marielle. She and my uncle George lived and worked in Montreal, but spent their weekends at a property they bought near the town of Montgomery Center in Northern Vermont. Their 70 acre plot was a historic farm on Black Falls Road surrounded by lush, green, rolling hills. They refurbished the century-old farmhouse into a holiday retreat. They filled it with art, furniture, and crafts that they had bought back from five years spent in Indonesia in the 1950s. I would often visit them at their farm during the summer vacations. Now, as much as I adored them, that old Vermont farmhouse always gave me the absolute willies. I felt an otherworldly vibe in every single room but one, a sunroom that had been built in the south side of the house in the 1960s. The rest of the house had a looming presence that felt most intense in the rough stone cellar. My aunt kept preserves in that cellar, and the one time I tried to follow her down the stairs, I recoiled in primal fear on the very top step. Going into the washroom meant walking past that door to the cellar. I could never brave that at night. But the house's atmosphere didn't seem to bother my aunt, even after she was widowed and cared for the property alone. I think she had an affinity for the supernatural. One summer evening at the farmhouse, she told us some stories from Indonesia that made it even more certain. I'd avoid getting up for that washroom during the night. My uncle was a geologist. He and Marielle went to Indonesia as part of the Columbia Plan for Cooperative Economic Development in South and Southeast Asia. The Columbia Plan was established by a group of Commonwealth countries in 1950 to provide economic and development assistance in the region. Indonesia had been a Dutch colony before independence following World War II, and some Dutch landowners remained there in the 1950s. My aunt and uncle visited one such plantation during a research trip on the island of Java. The landowner told them that the property was haunted by a spirit that he believed to be his own father. During a walk along a fence line near the main house, a voice began to call from ahead of their group. There was no one there to be seen, just the voice calling from thin air. Before fading away, the call began to sound like, Maria! Maria! My aunt heard the same call later that night as she walked to the outhouse. She quizzed everyone about it, wondering if one of the group were playing a joke, but they had all been indoors. Something from the other side had insistently called out her name. Back at their little home in Yogyakarta, my aunt and uncle had domestic staff who taught them about Indonesian language and culture. My aunt was an apt student. She loved Indonesia. A young man in her employ taught her about the Javanese keris, the wavy-bladed iron daggers believed to have spiritual presence and supernatural power. My aunt had acquired a small keris and displayed it on a dresser. The young man took care of the knife for her and was usually the only person who handled it. One weekend, though, he left Yogyakarta to visit a family in a neighboring town. He warned my aunt not to touch the knife during his absence. While getting something from the dresser, though, my aunt inadvertently knocked the carous to the floor. Decades later, telling us this story, her voice still deepened in shock as she said how the knife hit the floor, rolled over several times, and then rolled back. It rolled back on its own the exact same number of times. I owe much to my Aunt Marielle, an interest in other languages, in different ways of seeing the world. She would have loved to listen to anything ghost. Thank you for reading her stories, Lex, and take care. If you're enjoying the 20 episodes of Anything Ghost that you're listening to, wherever you listen to them, whatever app you use, it may behoove you to take a look at what you're missing. Thousands of ghost stories and 16 Anything Ghost Halloween specials that are all available to the Anything Ghost VIP group. There's a one-time membership fee to join, and you'll find yourself listening to ghost stories all day, every day, For some time to come, go to anythingghost.com and the Join VIP group for more information. Anythingghost.com, Join VIP. And longtime listener Brianna asked me a question about a couple of songs that I wrote that I added vocals to. And so I thought I'd play one because it reminded me of it. And uh, I played this a few times on episodes, but it was a popular song for Anything Ghost listeners about 10 years ago or so, 10, 12 years ago. It's called Sundowner. ghost story i want to share but in light of the recent event in texas i feel i should mention that although this story took place in a schoolhouse uh, no children were harmed in the incident the warrenville schoolhouse ghost warrenville illinois 1912 the story began in 1911 and involved for the most part two people miss edith smith single, school teacher, and Sylvester E. Adams, married, manager. At that time, Sylvester E. Adams, about 49 years old, had been married for nine years. Sylvester and his wife, Jenny, were living at 717 South Winchester in Chicago, Illinois. That residence is no longer there. It appears it is now a major hospital, fittingly enough. Sylvester Adams had moved from Jamestown, North Dakota to Chicago, and after moving there, he met and married Jenny, who was about 10 years older than he was. A couple years after their marriage, he began working for the Express Company as a manager. By 1911, he'd been employed there for seven years. Miss Edith Smith was a schoolteacher. She was about 32 years old at the time of this story. She lived not far from her schoolhouse in the city of Wheaton, Illinois. It was a small schoolhouse that stood in the middle of a desolate prairie about 10 minutes from the city of Wheaton and about a mile and a half from the village of Warrenville. The schoolhouse was called the Matthews Corporation School and she'd been teaching there for six years by 1911. Miss Smith was popular in the city of Wheaton where she lived and she was active in a society group Her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Smith, lived in Winlap, Washington. She had a brother and sister living in Chicago. Friday January 11th 1912 it was a cold snowy day the desolate schoolhouse roof was covered with snow when the children made it to school that day probably by foot horse or buggy as automobiles were only available to the well-to-do at that time some children walked as far as five miles to school and also in that day some would even attend elementary school at night because they were working during the day On that cold Friday in January 1912, Sylvester Adams bought a round-trip electric railroad ticket. He boarded a train for Wheaton at the Fifth Avenue Station in Chicago, where he lived. At the Matthews Corporate Schoolhouse, around 2.30 p.m., the children and the teacher heard a noise at the door. It was the sound of someone shaking the snow off their shoes. That sound was followed by the door to the school opening and a stranger then walked into the room the children didn't know him but it was Sylvester Adams they said he had a somber and threatening look on his face and they were frightened by his appearance after entering the room he firmly nodded toward miss Edda Smith the children said their teacher looked disturbed by his visit and did not return any greeting. Adams then took a seat on a bench at the rear of the schoolroom. We'll leave the schoolhouse scene for a moment, with Miss Smith standing in the front of her class and Mr. Adams sitting on a bench in the rear of the classroom for a short step back in time. As I mentioned earlier, Sylvester Adams was a married man his wife was Jenny. She was a friend of the teacher, Miss Smith. When the two women began hanging out, Mr. Adams soon took a liking to the younger schoolteacher and began making attempts to meet up with her in private. In fact, a few of the schoolchildren said that there were a couple of occasions when Mr. Adams visited the schoolhouse while Edith was working. Edith refused Sylvester's attempts at having an affair, and eventually it got to the point that Edith decided she needed to put an end to his advancements. On December 26th, 1911, she wrote him a letter. Mr. Adams, I always thought that you were a gentleman, but I am almost persuaded that you are not. I cannot and will not meet any married man in a place without his wife's consent. And Mrs. Adams, being a friend of mine, makes it even more sure. Take my word for it. I have respected your honor more than you have mine. If you wished my respect, then you must stop pestering me. I have not told anyone about you, and it will be yourself that will be the first to blacken your reputation. No talk with me will help either of us, so please let me think as well of you as I can. I can overlook the part, but I may not in the future. You must be a man for your wife's sake. May God and the angel friends help you. Respectfully, Edith Smith. A note was written in return by Sylvester Adams, but the letter was not sent to her. It simply said, If you do not meet me, God help you. You'll regret it. Sylvester Adams. Back to the schoolhouse scene, which was two weeks after she wrote the letter. While Adams was seated at the bench in the rear of the schoolhouse, Miss Smith tried to continue with her teaching, but the children noted in so many words that she seemed to be suppressing some anxiety for the rest of the session. Adams, on the other hand, remained perfectly quiet in the back for about five minutes. Then he slid over on the bench toward the schoolhouse door, and he pushed the bolt to lock the door. But a small brave girl got up from her seat, walked over to the door, slid the bolt back open, and sat back down. Mr. Adams did not attempt to lock the door again after that. After an hour and a half, 4 o'clock came around, and school was done for the weekend. Miss Smith dismissed the children. As they were walking out, many of the children were looking back at the stranger sitting on the bench, curious to as what was going on. Once outside, some of the kids, especially the little girls, sprinted off home. But at least two of the children, one being 14-year-old Willie Kroenig, lingered behind. He watched inside as the stranger got up from the bench and approached his teacher, and as she was walking to the exit. He grabbed her hand and began saying something to her. When the 14-year-old Willie saw the two struggling, he got scared and ran as fast as he could for help. He went to nearby Otto Seehauser's farmhouse. Otto was an elderly gentleman, about 83, who had fought in the Union 7th Infantry in the Civil War. But as Willie began to plead for Seehauser's help, the two heard muffled bangs come from the schoolhouse and upon looking over at the schoolhouse, they saw curls of smoke coming out of the schoolhouse door. Willie and Otto ran as quickly as they could to the schoolhouse, but they couldn't hear a sound from inside the school. So slowly they peered inside and saw Miss Smith lying stretched out on the floor in front of her desk. She had been shot in the right temple. Sylvester Adams was lying nearby on his back open eyes staring at the ceiling, a pistol lying nearby. Both were dead. There was evidence of a struggle with desks turned over, ink spilled on her desk, ribbons from the teacher's hair scattered about, and papers lying all around the floor. After investigating, officials found the letter Miss Smith had written to Mr. Adams, as well as an undelivered note He'd written to her. It was crumpled up in a ball. But they also found a check for $500 in Adams' possession that suggested Adams was planning to elope with Edith Smith, but she refused. After the event, Sylvester Adams' wife, Jenny, had nothing to say about her dead husband, only that she had no idea he had feelings for her good friend, Edith Smith. She added that she only grieved for her good friend, whom her husband had killed, saying Edith laid down her life to save our honor. She added that just a few days before the murder, in a letter dated January 8, 1912, Edith Smith had sent a letter to Mrs. Adams. They wrote often. Along with the letter, Edith sent a handkerchief as a gift, and she said that she thought Jenny as the first of all her friends. But unlike all the previous letters that Edith had written to her, she made no mention of good wishes to Sylvester, no mention of him at all. Jenny Adams said, This little martyr laid down her life to save my husband's honor and to save our honor. The Ghost of Edith Smith. Several days after the murder-suicide at the schoolhouse, children were again arriving for school with a new teacher at the helm. One morning, one of the children was heading toward the schoolhouse and as he looked up, he saw his dead teacher, Miss Edith Smith, staring out the window of the old schoolhouse. The child ran home screaming to his mother's arms. Other reports of Edith Smith's ghost began to surface from the students, and by late January, only a couple of weeks after the murder, the new teacher protested against holding class in the old schoolhouse any longer. The county decided they would demolish the old schoolhouse where the murder took place and build a new schoolhouse in its place. In the meantime, the children were transported to another school in the nearby city of Aurora. It was a longer walk, but the students were unanimous and that they would not mind the further distance. The expected date of the new school was Labor Day, 1913. I'm not sure what sits on the property of the old schoolhouse today where Sylvester Adams selfishly took the life of a beloved teacher and friend to many, Edith Smith. But I wonder if the ghost of Edith Smith that some of her students had seen is still peering out windows from what she believes to be the old Matthews corporate schoolhouse that sits on a desolate prairie road in Warrenville, Illinois, waiting for her pupils to arrive for another day of school. Rest in peace, Miss Edith Smith. Man, that's it for episode number 293 of Anything Ghost. As always, if you have a story you want to share, a personal ghost experience, or a local ghost legend, or you have a story to share that a friend or family member had an experience with a ghost, send it to lex at anythingghost.com, or go to the website and fill out the form there. It's under contact. Okay, everybody. Thanks again for listening to all these stories in episode number 293, and I'll talk to you in show number 294. Until then, have yourself a great week, and take care!